You gotta understand something here. This music is the glue of the world. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless. so crazy about it's just music welcome to sound opinions from chicago public radio and american public media i'm jim diorgatis a pop music critic at the chicago sometime and i'm greg Cott. i write about rock and roll for the chicago tribune today on the world's only rock and roll talk show we're going to tell you what happens when you take away the amplifier from one of heavy metal's greatest guitarists rage against the machines tom morello while his old band reunites this weekend in California, we're going to bring you a conversation, performance, and unique acoustic rage tune from Tom Morello. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and time now for some music news. That's Run DMC, an early 80s hip-hop classic from New York City. The godfather of that New York City hip-hop scene, Russell Simmons, in on the ground floor of the inception of groups like Run DMC and LL Cool J and the Beastie Boys, has spoken out recently against hip-hop lyrics. Uh, Coming in the wake of Don Imus' firing over racially insensitive comments about the Rutgers women's basketball team, there has been a groundswell of voices in the both the black community and in the right-wing community defending Don Imus, saying, why are we focusing on Don Imus's racially insensitive comments when hip-hop records do this every day? It's interesting how poor hip-hop got dragged into yeah. this, <laughs> you got, you know, this shock jock, you know, mouthing off. Nothing to do with hip-hop, and suddenly hip-hop's front and center. At what's shaping up to be, Greg, round two or a sequel to Nipplegate, the Janet Jackson thing Absolutely. of a couple of years ago. You see this small incident. Well, to some people it's not so small, but I think a, a relatively minor incident on national television blown up into this uh, wave of censorship, huge increases in fines for indecency to both uh, radio stations and TV stations. Now we see a crackdown on rap lyrics emerging. We see outspoken African-American tastemakers and leaders, people like Al Sharpton and Oprah Winfrey, calling out for uh, uh, some kind of check on hip-hop lyrics that demean women. And now you have Russell Simmons, one of the architects of hip-hop, saying that racially offensive words, such as the N-word, uh, bitch and hoe, uh, should be removed from hip-hop lyrics. I mean, he's basically calling on hip-hop artists to censor themselves. Those nasty words that you're talking about, what actually Simmons would like to see happen is have them added to the famous, infamous seven words that you can't say on radio that are hardcore curse words. Of course, the difference is you can imagine bitch or hoe being used in an artistic context. I mean, 
Shakespeare and Chaucer used mm. the word whore, right? But it's not stopping there. It's also spreading, and this is where it's getting insidious. Timbaland, your man, your hero, the, the producer of the moment, uh, <laughs> was an admirer of the Clintons, wanted to hold a big fundraiser for uh, Hillary Clinton in her candidacy for the president. There are a number of critics who are stepping forward and, and loudly saying, because he uses words such as bitch and hoe on his recordings, Hillary should not allow him to have this fundraiser for her. That's a little bit scary. Yeah, really. Context is the key, Jim. You're absolutely right. Words taken out of context and used as cudgels to say, censor these artists. We don't want to hear their music. Tipper Gore did that in the 80s with the uh, hearings on explicit rock lyrics in, in Congress. And now... Mentioning Russell Simmons in the same breath with Tipper Gore, I never thought we'd see that day. It's a really complicated issue, and it's unfolding more every day. We're going to look at it in depth in a uh, future episode of Sound Opinions. And uh, meanwhile, it's shaping up to be the story of 2007, I think. Nebraska, everybody here moves faster. They don't take the time till after. It's past the Greg, this is a strange and disturbing story on many levels. Uh, We've talked often on the show about the Recording Industry Association of America. That's the lobbying group of the major label recording industry, or what's left of it, going after people for illegal downloading, suing the college kid sitting in his or her dorm room, or the mother who just happens to download some tracks at night once the kids go to sleep. For some reason, the RIAA has targeted in a big way the (laughs) University of Nebraska-Lincoln with three rounds of first threatening letters, then followed by actual lawsuits targeting so far some 80 students there in Nebraska. I don't know why. Nobody knows why. So what's happening here, Jim, is the recording industry is threatening these students. They're saying, pay up $3,000. That's what you owe us for illegally downloading this music. If you don't pay up within 20 days, the fine is going to be $4,000. And if you don't pay us that, we're going to take you to court. We're going to talk to David Solheim, who is the student body president and student regent at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. David, uh, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thank you. I appreciate that. Why the heck do you think the recording industry, with all of its money and all of its lawyers and this much-talked-about campaign demonizing file sharing, why are they coming to Lincoln, Nebraska? That's a good question. I think that, and it's on the minds of a lot of people here in Lincoln. Um, Certainly, I don't think that Lincoln students download music and any greater numbers than anywhere else in the country. So it seems strange that Nebraska would be singled out as one of the top destinations for pre-settlement letters from the RIAA. David, what's your experience with file sharing on campus? I mean, I don't want you to incriminate yourself because God knows we don't want you getting an RIAA letter. But how widespread do you feel it really is? I mean, do you feel this is going on in a pretty widespread way at at the campus? Oh, no question. File sharing is prevalent, Um, not just at this campus, but I would guess at every campus around the country. I think studies show that the majority of students probably engage in some type of file sharing with um, illegal media, either songs or movies or something like that. So it it happens, certainly, and every student is aware of it. Is there also a, a, is there a CD store in Lincoln? I mean, do you see people also walking around with tons of CDs? Oh, we've got, you know, we've got all kinds of media stores in Lincoln. We're just a couple blocks from campus, we have a 
store that sells used CDs and used books, and we've got brand new CDs available all over campus. But you know, CDs are a relic. They're a piece of the '90s. This is the uh, 2000 <laughs> era, so people are going digital all the way. You said that you've uh, reached out to some of the students who've who've been targeted in these lawsuits, but you haven't actually spoken to any of them. Is there any sort of movement among the student body there in, in Nebraska to uh, get behind these students? And is there anger at the administration? I gather the college officials provided the names behind the IP addresses. They asked the RIAA to reimburse them for the cost of finding those names, but they didn't say, no, we're not going to hand these over to you. I think students are angry with the RIAA in the music industry and they're more frustrated with the university's position on this. To be clear, the university did not actually hand over names to the RIAA. They simply forwarded on correspondence to, this, to these particular IP addresses, these email addresses. Oh, and, okay. And then that email address was responsible for contacting the RIAA if they wished to settle. So the university isn't forwarding on names. But they're not saying, no, we're not going to forward on these settlement letters either. And students kind of feel like they've been, you know, put in, a, in a, t- a difficult position by the university now, and they, they want to know why the university is complying with this request, if not legally obligated to do so. Just a technical question. Yeah. Are there multiple computers in every dorm room, or are, are they doing it in their dorm rooms, and what kind of computers do they have in their dorm rooms? Well, students are increasingly uh, showing up to class with laptops and uh, going away from PCs, but I think in every dorm room, they're, they're still hardwired in. Uh, we, we don't have wireless in the dorms at this point. So it's very easy for a student to sit there while they're doing their homework uh, to be downloading music and listening to songs uh, as sort of a soundtrack to uh, their study that night. No question, yeah. It seems to me like what you're saying, David, is a lot more than 80 students are doing this as, as a matter of habit. This is a part of the lifestyle of a college student at the University of Nebraska. I think you could safely say that more than 10,000 students within a half a mile of me right now um, are probably downloading music sometime this week. So, so according to the record industry, those 10,000 people are all criminals and should be prosecuted <laughs> and, and pay these, these fines. That, that's the that's the inference I get. University of Nebraska Lincoln, <laughs> yeah. the gangster capital of the universe, <laughs> according to the recording industry. David, uh, thank you so much for your time and and good luck up there. I hope that uh, you Nebraskans uh, fight the record industry. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me on. You're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I Can Do Better from the number one album in the country. That's Avril Lavigne's The Best Damn Thing. Sold nearly 300,000 copies this week, Jim. Number one in the country. 300,000 sales. That's just chump change, though, to uh, Avril. She has sold more than 24 million records. Unbelievable. Since her debut when she was 17 years old. She's now all of 22. She's grown up. On her third album, uh, no longer a teen pop star. She's now a full-fledged married woman who is putting out supposedly more sophisticated music than she ever has. You can judge for yourself in a minute here. We're going to play a track from that record. But it's interesting to see how she has matured. She has gone from 
an artist who is basically plucked from obscurity. Napanee, Ontario, population 5,000, proverbial small-town girl, pretty naive, nice voice, uh, but not particularly worldly, and marketed as the sort of down-home girl, the, the girl next door, the, the earthier alter ego, if you will, of, of the Britney Spearses and the Christina Aguileras who are dominating the teen pop world a few years ago. And uh, Avril really struck a chord with, uh, with teenage girls. You know, she must have been the soundtrack to, you know, tens of millions of slumber parties because, in a way, a more relatable image than Aguilera's or the Spears were putting out at the time. For sure. So let's, let's play a song <laughs> from this new record before we talk about it. The, the track we're going to play is Girlfriend from the new Avril Lavigne record, The Best Damn Thing, on Sound Opinions. Levine, girlfriend from The Best Damn Thing, her third album. Greg, I was I was more down on this album when I first started listening to it. Look, there, there was never any credibility to Avril Lavigne. L.A. Reid created her and said, I'm going to give the skater crowd, the Hot Topic crowd, an alternative to the pop princess thing that Christina Aguilera and Britney Spears were, were peddling, and it worked. It was a great formula. Second album comes along. She's trying to grow up a little bit under my skin in 2004. You could tell because she wore more eyeliner and dressed a little more goth. Now at age 22, she's got to uh, she's got to move forward because you know the, the the half life of one of these pop princesses is 15 minutes, right? So she puts a curse word right there in the title, best damn thing, sprinkles them throughout the album, and starts to vamp out a little bit. That song, girlfriend, it, it bothered me a little bit. You know, hey hey you you, I don't like your girlfriend. No way, no way. I think you need a new one. And then she steals the boy, and so it's kind of like an anti-feminist message. It's, you know, there's other songs basically where she. She's talking, right, going right up to the PG-13 borderline R boundary of saying, I can perform certain things better <laughs> than other girls. Yeah. It doesn't actually spell it out, okay? Uh -huh. So I was thinking, you know, the production here is, is pretty good and, and, and pretty, it moves forward. She's working with her husband, Derek Wibley, the guy from Sum 41. She's working with Rob Cavallo of Green Day. You know, when she's moving quick, Girlfriend, I Can Do Better, Contagious, the songs are catchy. When she's doing ballads, and there's a couple of awful 
awful ones, including the song "Holding," uh, "Keep on Holding On" from the Aragon soundtrack. It was a huge hit, but it's a lousy song. Those are bad. But but I was like, I don't know if I want my ten year old to listen to this record. Then I went to see Christina Aguilera. <laughs> Not so much Aguilera, but the opening acts, Danity Kane and the Pussycat Dolls, two more of the best selling tween pop acts of, of recent years. I mean, those two acts combined count for another uh, 20 million records sold in the last two years. And I felt sleazier watching these young <laughs> women lip sync than I would going into the worst triple X theater in town. And my daughter had wanted to go to that show. I, I had a premonition that with the Pussycat Dolls opening, let's not go near that. I sat her down the other day, my 10-year-old, and I said, let's listen to Avril together. You know what? I hear what you're saying. You've got reservations about the content of those other artists, and you think, well, Avril's a little bit more of a wholesome alternative, which she's always been. She's successfully traveled that path for the last three albums. I think she's running out of time, Jim. I think, you know, I, I give her two albums to sort of work out those teen angst things that she, she's working out so well and so successfully in terms of commercial sales. Album number three, she's 22. She's married. She needs to grow up. This mall pop punk thing ain't working anymore for me. I, well, I, she's I, married, though, to a male mall pop yeah, punk star. How many, but how many stepping stone? I understood the first two albums as stepping stone albums. Here's a young teen audience coming into rock and roll for the first time, and they need to take baby steps. Before they can go to Black Flag or the equivalent today, they need to listen to something that's transitional between that and Christina Aguilera and, and Pussycat Dolls, and Avril Lavigne is a very credible choice for that. Well, but, yeah, well, you no, know, the analogy, al- Greg, is that you go from listening to Avril Lavigne to listening to the gossip. Yeah. Or if you want a classic rocker, you listen, listen to Patti Smith. Right. You know, and, and, and the message, I'm not being moralistic. I, I'm feminist. You know, I want my daughter to be instilled with songs about female power. Yeah, but these songs, Jim, are bad. <laughs> the music is bad. You know, of course forget, it's bad. Forget about the lyrics. I mean, I want better music from Avril now. She's gotten two albums to sort of work out that commercial thing, and I think she's stretched it too far. Three albums, I don't think she can make three Stepping Stone albums. She's not allowed that. She needs to grow up as an artist. And, and that maturity issue is huge. She's a lousy ballad singer. There's three bad ballads on this record. You're right. And there's that one rocker, I Don't Have to Try, where she adopts that Johnny Rotten sneer. It is just a laughable parody of punk. Hey, yeah, wrap this up. We would rate things on Buy It, Burn It, Trash It. I think it's fairly obvious that neither of us would listen to this for fun. So I'm going to alter our rating system for the day. Okay. Would you buy it, burn it, or trash it for your two teenage daughters? They already have the first two Avril Lavigne <laughs> records. They like them. She's just made that album again with a few naughtier words on it. I, I think it's totally disposable. I don't think there's any reason to own this Avril Lavigne record if you already have the first two, which are better in every way, I think. I'm going to trash my daughter's Danity Kane records and, and Pussycat Dolls records, and I'm going to buy her Avril Lavigne. I'd rather have her listen to this than a lot of other stuff. I mean, it's too much to ask that she discovers X-ray specs yet, but that day may be coming. <laughs> In one minute, on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, we hear Rage Against the Machine guitar god Tom Rolla like we've never heard him before, stripped down and acoustic.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Greg Cott, my partner here, and I have covered Tom Morello from the start of his career, when he emerged as one of the most innovative guitarists of the last 15 years behind Rage Against the Machine. We followed him through the sad detour of Audio Slave, a band we didn't love much, that alternative supergroup with Chris Cornell. Now he's here with the new guys as a singer-songwriter, calling himself the Night Watchman and touring behind his first solo album, One Man Revolution. Came home to visit his mom, Mary Morello, up in Libertyville, and to talk with us, Greg, once again uh, on Sound Opinions. All right, we're here with Tom Morello, and I'm gazing upon a very strange sight. Uh, not that Tom is strange, but Tom, Tom Morello. He's looking pretty awesome, good. Greg. Awesome yeah, intro there. He's bro. looking very good, but he is. Uh, what is strange about Tom Morello right now is that he's holding an acoustic guitar, a nylon stringed acoustic guitar, That's I correct. believe it is, right? That's correct. Here's a man. I've had many conversations with Tom, and as you have as well, Jim, uh, regarding his love uh, for Randy Rhodes and ACDC sure, back when he's sure, a teenager. Sure. He is a a major electric guitarist, one of the most innovative guitarists of the last 15 years on the electric guitar, uh, played in two highly noteworthy bands, Rage Against the Machine and Audio Slave. But now here he sits, mm. acoustic guitar in hand, no band backing him up, a man alone. <laughs> what is going on, Tom? Well, but the key is, Greg, what you left out there is, you know, where Woody Guthrie's guitar famously said, this machine kills fascists, Tom says, whatever it takes. Mm. And that That's is right. the key, why That's you right. are here That's now right. in your, well, he's not Tom, he's the night watchman. That's correct. <laughs> and uh, the way I look at it, it's, it's kind of like Bob Dylan in reverse. Like Bob Dylan began <laughs> as, a, uh, as an acoustic protest singer-songwriter and then moved to an experimental electric musician. I've uh, you know, applied my wares for oh, 15 years as an uh, experimental electric musician, and now I am uh, bringing it back to the uh, six strings, three chords, and the truth as the night watchman. <laughs> right, so you unplugged. That's correct. Dylan plugged in, yeah, Tom yeah, Morello yeah. unplugged. Yeah, the revolution will not be amplified. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you see, they can, they can shut you down yeah. when you're plugged in. That's right. But they, we can't shut you up now That's with right. an acoustic guitar in your right. voice. So, Tom, you've got this solo record, The Night Watchman, under the name The Night Watchman, called One Man Revolution. How did this uh, Night Watchman persona take hold? I, I began about five years ago writing and singing songs of my own for the first time. And uh, it began as I felt like I needed a balance to my arena rocking of Audio Slave and to my educating and organizing work with the Axis of Justice nonprofit organization. Like, as a music, like, I, I didn't choose to be a guitar player, it chose me. And so, like, being stuck with that vocation, it's been a challenge throughout my career to find ways to express my opinions and worldview via my music. Sometimes it's, it, they've come together in, in Rage Against the Machine. Other times they've been separate in Audio Slave and Axis of Justice. But the thing was, there was something that was missing when I was doing that, and that was using my voice as a musician to t kind of get my two cents in and to stick it to the man, you know, via the, <laughs> via the guitar. So, uh, so I began writing these songs and just literally going down to, uh, to open mic nights at coffee shops in the San Fernando Valley. And I'd come off of these, you know, audio slave arena tours and playing and down to playing in front of eight people. And anonymous. I would sign up as the night watchman. It was very important not to have, you know, the, the, the gathered dozen or so expecting bulls renditions of bulls on parade and scritch, scritchy scratch guitar solos. Right, the Rage fans coming out. That's right, that's right. So, you know, and I developed a catalog of material pretty quick. It was a, a kind of a, a cadre of songwriting pals, and we'd write songs for one another each week and developed a, a catalog of material, you know, 12 to 15 songs that I, that I felt I believed in as much as anything else I had ever written, and yet I had no outlet to kind of figure it out. 
At that point, I, I went over to my friend and producer Rick Rubin's house and said, Rick, I got these songs that, that I've written that I like, but I don't know that I'm the one to sing them. You know, I've never sung before, you know, since, you know, Libertyville Public High School and the concert <laughs> choir. I hadn't, you know, sung a, a pirate chanty, you know. Um, but you, you know, really avoided it in Rage Against the Machine. Yeah, I mean, they literally, like, took the microphone away from me at an early rehearsal <laughs> to, like, so I could concentrate on, you know, what I had to do. But I played the songs for Rick, and he said, you sing fine. You just don't have any experience doing it. You know, I have thousands of shows under my belt as an electric guitar player mm-hmm. and zero shows shows under my belt as a richly baritone, you know, <laughs> singer. Uh, so I went, out, I went out and played hundreds of shows. You know, we'd be on tour with Audio Slave, and on nights off, I would go in the local paper and find country and western bars, anarchist bicycle shops, anywhere that would have me, and just play these songs, and developed a body work and a confidence in doing it that soon thereafter, my friend Billy Bragg asked me to go on tour with him, and then I jumped from playing, you know, in front of 12 people a night to playing in front of 2,000 people a night, which was mortifying, you know, with, mm. uh, with no backing, roaring rhythm section behind me. Well, uh, was it was it good, Tom, to be frightened at this stage oh, in absolutely. your career? Oh, absolutely. It, it really, I mean, that was part of why it felt like I was making such a, such a, creative leap forward for me. Really, since the time I began to learn how to play guitar solos, it felt like this was the greatest challenge for me. But it also felt there were some of those nights in those coffee houses where it really felt like it was what was happening was important, you know? And and I thought, you know, if it only happens in front of eight people, that's fantastic, you know? But yeah. who knows? Who knows what, you know, what might happen if I... Because so many artists find a comfort zone. Yeah. And it had to yeah. be weird for you, uh, knowing you, as, as yeah. both Greg and I have from since the beginning of your career. Yeah. All of a sudden, oh, we got another arena show tonight. Yeah. Uh, it's only a 15,000 tonight. Yeah. Big yeah. deal. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> there, there would literally be some nights when we, it was either Rage or Audio Slave, so especially some of those European festivals where they mm-hmm. get huge, you know, they get in the yeah. hundreds of thousands. You know, we'd be playing, you know, outside of Lisbon, it'd be like 25,000. And people would be kind of like, oh, it's kind of hard to get up for the show tonight. Uh, how You're many rolling hours? Rolling out of cot on the, bu- on the bus. Like, yeah. Oh, you know, can we just go straight to what time's straight dinner? to Barcelona? Yeah. You know, <laughs> but but I mean, there felt like a real urgency at all of these shows, and I yeah. mean, I prepared for these shows in front of twelve people as much or more than I ever prepared for any electric guitar gig in my life. So then it went from from that to opening up for Billy Bragg and Steve Earle, and then you just couldn't stop me. I became yeah. one of the things that I learned in doing this was an, at the first couple shows I was very afraid. One thing I learned in doing this was a total Total fearlessness, and whether it was playing in front of, you know, fifty thousand, you know, steel workers in the streets of New York City, or playing while being tear gassed at the FTAA uh, protests in two thousand four in Miami, or you know, being on a TV show, or being at a country and western bar where no one wants me, you know, mm. I'm, or being on a radio show today. I'm like, <laughs> I'm right. You cannot stop the night watchman now. The cat is out the bag. Now people. that he started singing, there's no shut. That's up. right. That's well, right. Let, let's hear some of this. I think uh, sure. people are intrigued. They want to hear what this sounds like. Uh, sure. Let's hear what the night watchman has to, has All to right. say. All right. This uh, song is called House Gone Up in Flames. In the eyes you trust, it's in the jackal's dreams, it's in the sleet and the hail, it's in the unmarked box came today in the mail. It's in the dead man's pocket, it's in the child's first sin, it's in the Constitution written in very small print. It's in Colin Powell's lies, it's in the shaman's trance, it's in the cellar waiting. And it's in the best laid plans Now we could cut and run Take half the blame 
Yeah, don't stop now, that's why we came. National anthem, it's in the scurrying roach, it's in the closed partition between first class and coach, it's in the relentless fever, it's in the lonely room, it's in the hands of fate, and it's in the Pharaoh's tomb, it's in the rich man's dreams, it's in the poor man's hands, it's in the body bags along the Rio Grande. It's in the evening shade, it's on the zealot's tongue, it's in the widow's tears, and it's in the miner's lungs. Now we could cut and run, take half the blame, and don't stop now, that's why we came. spin, it's in the cloudless sky, it's in St. Peter's denial that he'd thrice deny, it's in the distant thunder, it's in the whispered prayer that they won't find us hidden here beneath the stairs, so consider yourself lucky and watch what you say, I got what I wanted, you might get the same, it's in bold print Nailed to the cathedral door It's in the black coal pressure On the ocean floor Now we could cut and run Take half the blame Yeah, don't stop now That's why we came Oh Lord, this house gone up in flames House gone up in flames. Uh, we need to get a, a mic on uh, on Tom's boot heel here <laughs> because he is pounding the floor. Stomping there is out some the righteous truth. indignation yeah, going right. on here. Right. Tom, uh, big range. That's a state of the world address if I ever heard one. We got everybody. We got St. Peter. We got Colin Powell in that song. Sure, Body sure. bags on the Rio Grande. <laughs> sure, 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 sure. That's, a, that's, a, that's the Night Watchman's global manifesto right yeah. there. That song was actually written. I had a 104-degree fever in an Italian hotel room. I do not recommend mm. going to the Italian doctors to cure a 104-degree fever. And kind of wrote that song all in one kind of stream of consciousness. And it wasn't until you know, a week or so later when I'd healed and looked back, to, back at the thing. And I was like... Wow, I'm not sure exactly what I was getting at, but it rings true. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tom, Harvard educated, you, you, lifelong interest in politics. Yeah. As people certainly in Illinois know, your mom is an activist, always yep. has been. Yep. Any thoughts at age 42 that, that maybe, you know, if you'd gone the Noam Chomsky route, if you'd been a professor, <laughs> if you'd been a writer, yeah. if you'd been a politician. Yeah. I mean, here we are, we're looking at a presidential run yeah. by a fellow yeah, uh, yeah. African American from yeah. Illinois. I mean, how yeah. amazing. You, you ever wish you'd. Done something besides well, you know, guitar? I, I, um, I worked for a while for uh, U.S. Senator Alan Cranston as his scheduling secretary for two years. So I got, to, I got to see firsthand the internal workings of the political and electoral system. And while Senator Cranston was w- one of the most progressive senators to ever 
you know, uh, be elected to the Senate, he spent most of his time asking rich guys for money. Yeah. You know, and uh, and that money doesn't come for free. You know, and uh, and my, my heroes have never really been the people that rattled around the halls of Congress. They were the Dr. Kings and the Malcolm X's and the Huey Newtons and the Weathermen and the Emma Goldmans and the uh, and the Joe Hills. Um, and and you know that, and also being cursed with being a guitar player. I didn't have any yeah. choice in that. You know, like <laughs> you know, some people are born into carpentry. I was born into yeah. in, into this. So uh, I, it's been like I said, it's been my um, it's been my challenge to find a way to weave those two uh, passions together. You made an offhand comment a couple of minutes ago about with Audio Slave, the politics were through your organization, mm-hmm. Access to Justice, yep. uh, inferring that th- there wasn't much politics, and, and there wasn't. I'll yep. say that as a critic. Yeah. I, I missed that content when Chris Cornell was singing with you and your rage bandmates behind him. Was that an odd thing for you? Well, I mean, I think with with in order for any creative endeavor to to be good, it needs to be honest. Mm-hmm. And we were not going to shoehorn Chris Cornell into Zach's shoes, you know, and he right. certainly didn't want to do that. And and it was like I had to choose to, you know, either be in that band and have it be apolitical and find political outlets outside of it or not be in that band. I really wanted to be in that. It was We had such a great time and friendship writing and creating that music that it was worth it to me to do it. But I did find in the early going that it wasn't enough, you know, that I needed an outlet that was musical that was going to be a uh, where I was going to be able to express my opinions. Gotcha. It's interesting what you're doing now, though, because it does sort of focus a lot on you, your voice, your thoughts. In Rage, there was the there was a shield there in a way. Yeah. Uh, the, if somebody didn't want to listen to politics, they they could just get off and That's rock. True. That's true. And on, with this, it's really focused on the lyrics and the presentation. So in a lot of ways, you're sort of sticking your neck out even further. Yeah. Well, I mean, with Rage Against the Machine, we musically we certainly cast the nets very wide, and and it drew fans that were willing to engage in the political content and fans that wanted to bang their heads and go nuts in the mosh pit. With this, it is, you know, one criticism you could level at is that it is music that is preaching to the converted. Well, I strongly believe the converted need a kick in the ass, you know, and the converted, why the White House is not ringed with pitchforks and torches, I don't know. Uh, but uh, but hopefully, you know, a few months into the release of One Man Revolution, we can change that situation. Well, we're four years into the war in Iraq, yeah. and there does seem to be, I mean, there's a general perception that there's a dirt of, of music out there that is sort of addressing, engaging the political system. I don't believe that's true. Yeah. I just don't believe it's really heard that way. It's not mm-hmm. as visible. I mean, when you think about 67, 68, 69, yeah. Yeah. you know, the, the hippies, freaks, and musicians surrounded the Pentagon yeah. and yeah. tried to get it to levitate. levitate right? you, you know, I mean, where is that? Tom's right. There, there aren't pitchforks outside yeah. the White House. There's there's one little lady who's, who camps out down the road from Bush's uh, right. Texas right. house. Right, right, right. I mean, I think you're seeing now, like in the, I was doing an interview the other day with some British newspaper. They were talking about how Literally every compact disc that crossed their desk in the last month or so had some political content, whether it's the new Nine Inch Nails or whether it's Bright Eyes or whether it's Arcade Fire, whatever. And so I think that, you know, musicians are certainly not alone in their disgruntlement with what's going on. I think you find that across the sort of employment spectrum. But while there is commentary on it, I think that it's not connected to action in the way that it has been in some other quarters. And that's why, you know, that's why in making this music, it's always been important to me to have it be absolutely unfiltered, unwatered down, and uncompromising in both its musical and its lyrical content. What's interesting to me about this record, though, Tom, is that there are calls to action on it. But the stuff that really intrigues me is the stuff where it seems like you've created this persona here and almost an alter ego. And he's really kind of screwed up guy. Uh, he's got some issues. And I love the, uh, that's what I like about it, that there's this con- conflictedness yeah. within this guy. And he seems to be torn about what he needs to do and yeah. how extreme he needs to be. Yeah. 
And is this a reflection of your own inner thought process? Ab- absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. I mean, there are songs which are kind of rousing calls to solidarity and organizing like Union Song or more introspective songs like No One Left about uh, you know, equating human suffering here and a half world away in, in, in the Middle East. But a good number of the songs come from a much darker place, which I found is a corner of me, which is very, very real. You know, and, and, and I'm not... And, when I began writing the lyrics of these songs, I surprised myself that they weren't these kind of didactic manifest, you know, songs entitled George Bush is very awful. You yeah. know, like, <laughs> like, you know, that that's not what came out. It was it was darker fare. And, you know, I think it really does speak to a corner of me that, that wrestles with the issues of nonviolence and wrestles with issues of like I am so as I believe many people are so frustrated with the you know, snail's pace of progress of turning this thing around, how it seems like there's there's no brakes on this train, this right-wing train that's headed to hell, and why isn't somebody fighting back by any means necessary? Um, and there's part of me that's, that thinks that that might not be the worst idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And well, the Night Watchman, uh, we, certainly. We've been reasons. having this conversation with you, Tom, since, since before Album One came out. You know, yeah. is it possible to advocate revolution from... The comfortable confines of the health insurance policy at Sony Music right. Incorporated, you know, that it's really interesting to hear you talking about these issues. You right, know? Right. Do I throw the hand grenade, or is is writing this song enough? Yeah, Does it do yeah, something? yeah. I mean, that's the conflict. And for the for the first time on record, I've addressed it lyrically. Well, I've contributed to the lyrics of my past band. This is the time, you know, where thirteen songs in a row I've been able to address it. Can right. you give us another one? Sure, uh, along I'd be those happy lines. To. Let's, t- uh, t- t- and tell us where it came from. Sure, this is a this is a song called "Flesh Shapes the Day," which is about. What is the engine of history? I mean, Jesus, Muhammad, and Karl Marx had one thing in common. They stood for the poor and oppressed, and they stood against the rich and the powerful. You know, and how does uh, conviction to principle manifest itself in your daily life if you really want to turn this thing up around and shake the snow globe up? This is uh, Flesh Shapes Today. You might have heard different I know it's a fact that Jesus, Mary, Joseph, and the Apostle Paul were black. Ten letters I am writing, each one reads the same. The nine circles I am drawing, one around your name. Land and freedom, steel and faith, tooth and bone and wire, hand, skin, scar, dirt and fire. Woo, woo, woo. Mic check. Woo, woo, woo. It doesn't matter who you are, it does not matter what you say. Flesh shapes the day. Flesh shapes the day. It's clear as a pillar of smoke and broken Starbucks glass. Yeah, I support my troops. They wave black flags, they wear black masks. All the roads are closed. Smoke is rising from the fields. The monsters left their cages. An angel set them free. Land and freedom, steel and faith, tooth and bone and wire, hand, skin, scar, dirt and fire. Woo, woo, woo. Mic check. Woo, woo, woo. It doesn't matter who you are, does not matter what 
which you say flesh shapes the day. A flesh shapes the day. Si se puede. the fire and billionaires and open bars and early exits and judgments hard and land and freedom and steel and faith and tooth and bone and wire hand skin scar dirt and fire woo, woo, woo. mic check woo, woo, woo. it doesn't matter who you are does not matter what the Say flesh shapes the day. A flesh shapes the day. A flesh shapes the day. A flesh shapes the day. Flesh shapes the day. Tom Morello as the night watchman. You're listening to Sound Opinions on Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, and we're going to be right back with The Night Watchman, a.k.a. Tom Morello. On the streets of New York, the cabs don't stop. On the street where I live, they called the cops. Found a noose in my garage, now how about that? So tonight I'm in the bushes with a baseball bat. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. You're listening to our discussion with musician and activist Tom Morello, who is about to go on tour in his new acoustic incarnation as the Night Watchman. He's also participating in a couple of protest rallies in support of low-wage immigrant workers. Alongside Rage Against the Machine bandmate Zach Dilaraca. This is the real news here, folks. Rage Against the Machine reuniting after a seven-year hiatus this weekend at the Coachella Music Festival in California. So we wanted to ask Morello about what's happening with Rage Against the Machine, as well as Audio Slave and his solo work. Obviously now, at this point, Rage Against the Machine is doing four reunion shows yep. this summer. Yep. We'll talk about that in a little yep. bit. 
Audio Slave, you said to me, which I was surprised, that, that despite you, you were in Chicago this past weekend, Chris Cornell was in Chicago Wednesday. Oh, really? uh, you, oh, yeah. you said you still haven't even heard from him. No, no, I haven't heard from him yet. All right, so maybe that band is gone. Maybe it's not. Yeah, I mean, right? Pro- I would suggest Gone would probably be the more likely All scenario. Right. Yeah. Two electric <laughs> bands in some way, shape, or form, maybe or maybe not going. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But uh, you ever see a time where you'd plug in and play electrically as the night watchman? Uh, no, I don't think so. You know, I, I like uh, having there be a firewall between the day watchman, you know, yeah. uh, guitar hero- heroics and the <laughs> night watchman folk heroics. How do you now, as Greg said, and he was not exaggerating, I write for Guitar World sometimes. Those guys worship the ground you walk on. I think you've been on four or five covers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the most innovative electric guitars. Is it sort of like Coltrane deciding, yeah, I'm good at this saxophone, but I'm going to play kazoo yeah. on this next record? <laughs> it's, it's audacious. I, I because I they're, they're, yeah. they're obviously virtuoso acoustic. To guitars, sure, but sure. that's not you're not that's not this, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is that weird? Yeah, I mean, well, I'm, it was a I've been a fan of this genre of music for a long time. You know, I really love Woody Guthrie, Johnny Cash, Springsteen's Nebraska, mm. um, Ghost of Tom Joad, you know, like that Leonard Cohen, like that music, you know, even sort of like the more kind of acoustic, like Pink Floyd or Peter Gabriel lyrically, you know, like that's something that which which my rock bands have never bumped up against that kind of presentation and uh but it's a huge part of it. like when i'm on the on my ipod that's what i'm listening to when i'm on tour with audio slave mm-hmm. or with rage against the machine so you know like just having the the kind of the the courage to just kind of i'm gonna you know what i'm not gonna wait around for one of my bands to start playing and singing songs like this i'm gonna do it myself i mean throughout my whole career if you call it career as an activist since i was 17 years old at libertyville public high school i've encouraged people to have the faith and the strength to say what they have to say, you know, in an unfettered way and to, you know, take the reins of their lives and be, you know, completely unapologetic about who they are and what they want to do. And I've decided to take my own advice, finally. (laughs) Now, what about that guitar, though? I mean, it sounds like that's the guitar of choice around the house. I mean, you're not not shredding in in your house. But are you actually coming up? With the inventive stuff on electric guitar on the acoustic first, well, the, I mean, is the, that the how? bones of my songwriting have for many years been written on a nylon string acoustic guitar. That is literally the only guitar I have around my house, and I've written all my, you know, many of the rage riffs and probably all the audio slave riffs uh, on nylon string acoustic guitar. And I can just like in my head hear, like I know when I write it and it sounds like this on acoustic guitar, how it's going to sound with that roaring, you know, band playing it. Mm-hmm. Um, would you indulge us? Would you show us how something started on acoustic oh, that we would sure, never have thought sure. started I mean, there? Uh, um, I'm sort of in the wrong tuning for a couple, of, but I, I, I believe the song uh, Sleep Now in the Fire was an acoustic guitar. There's like... And I just knew that that yeah. was just going to kick ass in a stadium. Because yeah. <laughs> it sounds nothing like that. When you, well, I, 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 I heard that in a stadium. You can recognize yeah. the riff, yeah. but, but it's without the, the swooping dive bomb. Yeah. But, but, but to do the, the trash compactor sound or right. the uh, the whirring coffee grinder. That requires the, actually pub- you have to have plugging amp- in. Yeah, amplifier plugging in. That's yeah. correct. Okay, That's I got requires you. requires plugging in. Jesus bless me with his future And I'm protected with fire 
mean, you've talked about how agonizing the, the songwriting process was in Rage mm -hmm. uh, against the Machine in particular. Yeah. At the same time, it was interesting to hear that Della Rocca apparently wrote a song on the plane over to pl to play at your gig for That's the right. farm workers the That's other right. day, That's right. which is like exponentially faster than any Rage Against the Machine song has ever <laughs> That's, been written. That's true. So is there a new chapter here coming for Rage, perhaps, well, uh, in terms of your collaboration and your willingness to go ahead with this band again? Well, well we've had a great time, you know, in the, in the short amount of time that we've just begun rehearsing. It's It's been really rejuvenating personally, you know, for our relationships, and it's unbelievable to stand in a room with that band and to play those songs. I mean, it's like, I forgot what a rocket ride that was. Right now, it is just a handful of shows this summer, and there are no plans to write or record an album. You know, you know, we were literally the other day just figuring out how to play bomb tracks, so I think it's kind of looking too far ahead to imagine there, there being a record. But um, I love the idea of playing more Rage Against the Machine song, uh, Rage Against the Machine shows. I think that these times demand that band's voice to, to be back. You know, and I wonder if it's a coincidence that in the seven years that Rage Against the Machine has been away that the country has gone into right-wing <laughs> purgatory. What can you say about your partnership with Zach, uh, Tom, in that you made a lot of music uh, uh, as the Night Watchman and as Audio Slave uh, yeah. in the years since Rage, yeah. but he didn't. We were all waiting and waiting and waiting, yeah. you know, and, 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 you know, not quite as bad as the Guns N' Roses album, but right. almost. Right, right, right. Well, I mean, that's, I mean, that's a question better, better for him. I don't know. I mean, we haven't yeah. been in constant contact during that. All I can say is it, it's, you know, like just playing with him the other day on the, on the stage at House of Blues was awesome, you know, and, and the collaborating and work, I mean, we literally worked out an acoustic set of four songs 20 minutes before, maybe 25 minutes before we went on stage and, you know, in the, in the, the feet, the connection, the one thing that Rage Against the Machine, you know, even in the, in the darker times of intra-band problems was the connection that that band had with its audience it was unlike anything I've ever seen between any band and any audience except maybe when I was in the audience for the clash you know mm. um and to feel that we felt that hot at the House of Blues the other day, you know, and so yeah. very much looking forward to Coachella and, and seeing what that's like. Well, give it, you want to give us sure. One I more? actually was going to play you. Uh, uh, this is a little version of a Rage Against the Machine song, which I've ah. uh, worked up for you today, and uh, this is a. Uh, the lyrics may be familiar, but uh, it's a different different take on an old old chestnut. Transmission, Third World War, Third Round, a decade of the weapon, a sound above ground. There's no shelter, mister, if you're looking for shade. I lick shots, mister, at the brutal charade. All the fistigons, all the bullets and bombs, who stuff the banks? the party ranks war for gore or the son of a drug lord none of the above mister cut the cord lights out guerrilla radio lights out guerrilla radio lights out guerrilla radio turn that let's go Jack the frequencies I block the beltway I move on DC now we're way past the days my friend bombing MCs go on Mumia go on be free who got a mister check the federal file 
All your pen devils know the trial was vile. An army of pigs could not silence my style. Off them all out the box, mister. It's my radio dial. Lights out, Gorilla Radio. Lights out, Gorilla Radio. Lights out, Gorilla Radio. Turn that shit up, let's go. than here. What better time than now? All hell can't stop us now. 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 A treat. <laughs> there you have it. Tom Morello channeling Howlin' Wolf, I think. There is, great, man. there is nothing left to say. That was nothing awesome. could follow that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was great. Let us bid farewell to Tom Morello, a.k.a. the Night Watchman. Thank you, Tom, for, uh, for guesting on Sound of Well, it has been a sublime pleasure to be here. <laughs> Next week on Sound Opinions, we've got a big review show for you. New releases from Bjork, Mavis Staples, Arctic Monkeys, and Feist. We're going to review them all. Good stuff, Greg. we got some thank yous to say. Sound Opinions is produced by Todd Bachman, Matt Spiegel, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn. Uh, Tom Morello's performance was recorded by Sarah Toulouse and Mary Gaffney. And as always, our fearless leader is Tori Southside Malatia, who, uh, you know, got some weird package from the RIA the other day, and I haven't <laughs> seen him ever since. <laughs> On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. New messages. Hi, this is Karen from North Carolina. That Kings of Leon song sounded exactly like the Pixies to the point where I was almost too offended and had to turn off the radio. <laughs> So I'd let you know. Thanks. Bye. Hi, my name's Brett. I'm from uh, Chicago. And I just heard your review of uh, Kings of Leon, and I could care less about that. But Mr. Cott, Black Crows are despicable. I think that might be a little little harsh. I'll give you that they haven't made any new records in a while, but rock and roll is still about live music. And I think the Crows have become one of the best live bands that I've seen in a long, long time. And that still counts for something to me. I reject your sound opinion on uh, Black Crows, and thank you very much. Bye. Hey, it's Andy Pinelli from Homer Glen, Illinois. Uh, thanks for that Joe Boyd story. 
uh, what an era and, and what fantastic stories about uh, Pink Floyd, uh, especially uh, Sandy Denny and, and uh, Richard Thompson. Uh, where else are you going to hear stories like that? Bye now. People are talking, talking about people. I hear them whisper. You won't believe it. They think we're lovers. Hello, I'm Alexis. And you know what? I really have to say that Sanjaya may not be top 4D material at the moment. It's not to say he won't be. And people are cutting him down and, and all this stuff. Listen, all types of people from all over the world have made it big. So don't be cutting him down just because he's Indian and vulnerable and sweet and doesn't have all everything it takes at the moment because he can learn just like anybody else. And I think he's doing fantabulous. And I think you guys are just jealous. Anyway, he's wonderful. I love him. And I hope he makes it to the top. Hey, guys. It's Ben from Los Angeles. Been a big fan of the show since I picked it up on podcast about a year ago. Haven't missed a single episode since. I usually agree with you guys. Well, not always, but most of the time. But this whole Destination Festival complaint, I mean, come on. You just got off a story where you're, you know, talking about the end of, you know, internet radio. And then you start complaining about Destination Festivals. Come on, Jim. It's, it's not the end of the world. It's, in fact, it's a good thing. Look what they've done for bands in England, you know? It's something that, it's, it's, while it's not perfect, it's the best we have right now. And certainly nothing's complained about, considering what else is going on. Anyway, love the show. Keep up the good work. Thanks. Bye. Hi, this is Andrew calling from Milwaukee. I like your show and uh, the part about the Destination Festivals this week. Um, well, I feel like I should mention uh, there's a lot of underground metal festivals that are this sort of thing. They're all over Europe, and they're making a comeback in the U.S. too, especially the uh, Maryland Death Fest, which is, takes place every year over Memorial Day weekend in Baltimore. And uh, they got 28 bands playing this year, and I think 21 of them are from out of the country. Several, like uh, Dead Infection from Poland, are making their U.S. debut. Um, yeah, so I just wanted to let you guys know that keep up the great work. Love the show. Great. Thanks a lot. Hi, this is Brant. I do not like your sound opinions because there's nothing more boring than to hear people talk about music. You're going to enjoy the music, play the music, but don't have a bunch of stupid people commenting about music. It's like taking a bath with a raincoat on. No more sound opinions. messages to give us your opinion on sound opinions call our hotline 1-888-859-1800 we'll be back next week with sound opinions from chicago public radio and american public media